Welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Just like always, you're with Ian and with Mike. And together we are rereading our favorite novel series, the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, how has that reading been going? Where did we get to last week? Where are we headed to this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. Yeah, last week as we finished up Chapter 4, Jack was officially reinstated to the Navy list and read in as Captain of the Diane. Stephen started his paperwork to move his fortune, his vast fortune, to Smith's Country Bank. Jack was welcomed back to his club in London, Blacks, where he, Jack, Stephen, Sir Joseph Blaine, and the envoy, Mr. Fox, met to discuss their new upcoming mission here, the one we're headed on this time. And we started getting some warning signals about Fox. Now, Stephen got a new melee servant, Ahmed, who is a cousin of Fox's melee servant, Ali, in order to start learning the melee language on his journey. This time, as we dive into chapter five, the Diane begins a long, perilous journey around Africa toward Pulo Prabang. Now, Jack considers the relative merits of naval life versus life on a letter of mark, thinking back mm-hmm. to our dear surprise. Jack, Stephen, and the crew come to know Mr. Fox, the envoy, a little bit better. Their contrary currents, disappointing winds, inaccessible islands, mountains of ice, character studies, and new insights into the American Revolution's rallying cry. You'll never look at the Boston Tea Party the same again. It's great stuff, this chapter. Um, We are at sea. We're at sea aboard the Diane, and Jack is leading divine service on the quarterdeck. He's not on the usual upper deck. We have the Royal Marines, the officers, the midshipmen, and the crew all in their Sunday best. And like, we, we've been here before a few times, by the way. That's a phrase we're going to use a lot this chapter. Right. We've been here before a few times with Jack and the ship's company. We've been here on a Sunday with divine service and maybe also the Articles of War. Now, Jack closes the service and announces Amen, which is followed by lots of ship sounds. It's followed by the call of penguins because... I don't know if you'd noticed, Mike, I'm just catching up with the fact that we're now in the South Atlantic. Right. And we're disturbed by the voices. It says, the voices far forward of the pagans, Mahometans, Jews, and Catholics who had not attended the Anglican service. And Jack has been having church set up here so that he can keep an eye on this island that he expects to to come close into now, the unexpected inaccessible island. He's been worried about it ever since he woke up knowing that Tristan de Cuna, which is um, a, a watering hole and also a place where he hopes to snap up some Americans, 25 miles to the northwest, when he had been expecting to approach it from the north. So, Mike, they're many, many thousands of miles south after they set off from London. I'm in awe of the fact that they've got even close to Tristan de Cuna, but he was clearly expecting a rather different approach, and it's put the ship, as we're going to learn, in a tricky situation here. They've had all this bad weather, so both Jack and the Master's dead reckonings have been off. His anxiety increases, and his voice becomes sterner as the wind dies, the wind that he had been hoping would carry them past this island called Inaccessible. 
And Mike, th- th- there's not only the lack of wind, there are other things that have turned out to be not quite okay aboard the Diane here. Right, right. You know, we find out that that fielding the first lieutenant is in bed with a broken leg. So second lieutenant Elliot's been kind of running everything and Jack tells him to carry on as church ends. But, you know, Brian tells us that Elliot is the guy who disregarded orders and didn't wake Jack, you know, much earlier when this island was first spotted in the morning. You know, back when Jack could have had a lot more leeway. No, sorry, bad word choice. (laughs) Jack could have done many more things with it. Maybe he did have a lot more leeway at the same time, too. Well, newer hands, you know, church is over. Hey, they're heading down to relax and get ready for dinner. But the older hands, like Jack, are just staring at this inaccessible island very intently. Fox, however, isn't catching on here. He's standing there with Jack on the quarter deck since you know it's kind of between church and becoming Jack's sacred place here. And he remarks that, hey, their voyage is complete now. They've caught sharks. They've eaten flying fish. They've sweltered in the doldrums. They've crossed the line. And now they've seen a desert island. And Jack says, yep, yep, nobody's ever succeeded in landing on this thing because the other sides of the island are even higher than the thousand foot sheer cliff, which they're staring at right now. Yeah. And this entire journey, we discover, there have been low key troubles all the way along. They were short of hands. They sailed 26 short. They had lain windbound in Plymouth for a while and then had to leave really fast when the wind changed, leaving so fast that they left behind the surgeon, Mr. Graham, and they left behind four valuable hands who had failed to respond to the Blue Peter in the prescribed 20 minutes. Jack had decided to go far south, to get close to Brazil and to get down into the 40s as quickly as possible. So here, Mike, whereas in HMS Surprise and Desolation Island, we kind of lingered and had some description of the journey south through the Atlantic. We've hit the fast forward button here and we're right the way down uh, past Ascension Island, almost as far south as the Falkland Islands here in the 40s. And he wanted to get there as quickly as possible. Having fewer hands aboard means that they're not going to run out of supplies and water quite as quickly as they might have done. And maybe that plays in their favor here. However, unless they can get past this island into which the ship is being pulled broadside on by the current, they're never going to reach the roaring 40s despite being so close. And Mike, we've heard earlier on people talking about the impervious perils of a lee shore. We talked a few chapters ago about what is a lee shore. They've been super unlucky. They've found themselves upwind and uptide of a shore that's tiny compared to the rest of the ocean. But right where it is, this shore, this island has the chance to really do for the whole ship and the whole ship's company here. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's you know clearly a dangerous situation, and and you've got. Jack, who's who's kind of caught between a, a little bit, well, a rock and a hard place. That sounds too awful <laughs> <Yes>. to tell <laughs> you. Sorry, forgive me. Forgive me, listeners. But he's thinking, okay, you know, with this dirty weather the last couple of days, you know, we've been calling up the watch time and time again. Men are exhausted. They're in their Sunday best. I'm, I'm really certain, thinks Jack, that the wind's going to come back here. So he's hesitating, lowering the boats and getting them to drag them away from this island here. But Elliot brings one of the hands, Adams, forward to see Jack. Uh, Adams has been telling Elliot that he had been on a whaler in this territory and he'd seen his entire ship lost to this island. Jack talks to him and Adams says that the current gets much, much stronger the closer you get to the island. And Jack thinks, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. So he says, you know, well, when we get to seven bells, if there's not a breeze, we're lowering all the boats in. And Elliot O'Brien writes in a low, strangely altered voice, 
says, uh, perhaps I should have reported this before, sir, but the carpenter has found a number of rotten boards in the launch and he's taken them out. So in addition to everything else that's going on, Jack's now finding out that his launch is not going to be usable here. So Jack immediately has all the other boats, including Stephen Skiff, lowered to start trying to pull them away from inaccessible. And by the way, we, we were talking about towing a couple of books ago when we were in our reread of Master and Commander. That was the Sophie with a little ship, a brig, two masts. This is a whole other thing. This is a heavily laden, what is it, 32-gun frigate. They have really got it all on here to keep themselves away from this island. Right. So this this whole jeopardy with the towing and the current and the wind so far seems to have escaped Stephen. He's up by the foremast like, like he likes to do. He's watching nature. The water's really clear. He can see fish swimming by as swells rise up beside the ship. He's aware of this commotion. He can hear all the uh, activity back in the ship there, but he ignores it. The text says his entire conscious attention was now wholly taken up with the most striking, moving, and unexpected sight he had ever seen. As his eyes followed a penguin swimming rapidly westwards in the glassy wall rearing before him, they met a vast shape swimming east. He instantly knew what it was, but for a moment his mind was too astonished, amazed, to cry out, Whale! A whale, a young, plump sperm whale, a female slightly speckled with barnacles, and she had a calf close by her side. They swam steadily, their tails going up and down, the calves faster than its mother's, and at a given moment they were on a level and even higher than his gaze. Then the ship in its turn rose, heeling on the crest, and they were gone, quite gone. I'm like, this is a lovely moment. I mean, besides being great for Stephen and his character and poetically written, it's a really nice contrast here between the frenetic activity in the ship and what Stephen's beholding here. It is. And, and you know, I'm, I'm thinking this is like Stephen sort of walking into this huge aquarium that can have big whales, you know, right yeah. there on the wall. And it's it's these waves coming up next to the ship in this clear water. And I'm just blown away by it. But there's that that kind of catch at the end that the whales are gone, quite gone. And I'm thinking, yeah. you know, we just had Adams describing how he was in his whale boat watching his ship gone, quite gone. You know, as it smashed into this island here. And I'm thinking, this does not sound good. Mm-mm. <laughs> well, Stephen is still filled with this joy. He doesn't realize this potential ominous portent here. He's, you know, he goes off to tell Jack about what he's seen, but then he sees Jack's face and he just stops. And Jack tells Stephen to go below and keep all the civilians out of the way. And so Stephen hurries off, hits the ladder, and intercepts Fox and his party kind of coming up. And, and they go down and Fox invites him to play chess. Now, O'Brien tells us that Fox plays really well and he likes to win. Stephen plays indifferently and he doesn't like to lose. So, of course, Fox asks Stephen to play chess as, as, as often as he can. And Fox, though, had gotten his head up enough to notice that the island had come much closer. And he asked, you know, maybe playfully, you know, is it, is it time to confess our sins and make out our wills? I think, you know, Fox is probably also catching on. There's this frenetic activity up there above him. Steve says, no, 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 no. All the activities probably related to them landing on Tristan once the wind that Jack has promised carries them north. And Fox asks, you know, well, it's, it's surprising 
you know, the, it's such a swell, but I'm not seeing a lot of surf pounding into that island when I was up there. And Stephen says, well, it's probably because of this great gigantic southern sea kelp that, you know, stretches a long, long, long way. Well, Fox is, you know, we, we carry on. Fox is playing the game. He's in a position to defeat Stephen much later in the game, but he keeps delaying the victory as, as the ship is shaking around. He's kind of relishing the feeling of having him just where he wants him. But O'Brien tells us he delays one violent lurch too many <laughs> and the board falls over, the pieces scatter. And Fox says, well, we'll just have to have a, a rematch when we're in calmer waters. And they start talking about their shooting competitions. And O'Brien informs us that Fox is the better shot with a rifle and Stephen is better with a pistol and Stephen believes that eventually he'll be able to beat Fox with both, but that he'll never beat Fox at chess. <laughs> it's funny. We, we, as the books go by, I'm noticing here, we're getting some switching of roles. And if you were right back at the beginning of the canon, um, toxic masculinity, if it's present, is in the, in the form of Jack and all the, you know, one or two other uh, folks egging him on to be the worst of his mankind there. And here, toxic masculinity. We've we've got pointless self defeating competition between Stephen and the diplomat, and it's Jack who's being kind of you know universal force for good out on the deck, keeping the ship safe. So, um, and I wonder if that's setting the expectation for the second half of the canon. I don't know. We'll have right, to our see. new our new somewhat laudanum free Stephen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> somewhat exactly. Uh, oh, and by the way, Jack has not chewed out Elliot for missing the landfall. He hasn't chewed out the carpenter for his sloppy maintenance of the boats. He's just keeping everybody safe and getting on with doing his best to get out of this maneuver here. So Jack is in a good place here. There's a little bit of deflecting the blame going on here, though. When we get back up on deck, the carpenter says, oh, it's the fault of these lousy copper bottoms. This is always a, you know, you're asking for trouble with copper bottoming these boats and the, the, the wood rots and you can never see it there. And I think we just, Take this for what it is. It's a defensive swipe by somebody right. who realizes he's been uh, he's been caught out. Everyone else, meanwhile, is watching the boats being rowed, trying to tow the Diane's head away from the island, and looking at the changing distance between the Diane and the island as it comes in. And I had a similar experience to this once. Well, similar in a few very very small ways. Um, returning quite the worst for drink to a boat anchored in a bay in Greece. Um, and the wind changed direction and blew up, and the anchor dragged by about 100 feet. And we realized just as we were about to turn in, in our cups, that we were now really a lot closer to this island immediately downwind of us than we had been when we set the anchor sober 12 hours earlier. So we spent a very uncomfortable night watching and making sure that we weren't dragging any closer to this island than uh, than was safe. And it, it was all okay, and we had hangovers to, to show for it. Oh, no. Anyhow... The Dianes are all watching the distance, the closing distance between the ship and the island. The boats at first had made pretty good progress, but they're losing ground as the ship enters this seaweed. And Mike, there's something really kind of primeval about the idea of seaweed that's so big and gross that it's kind of almost, you know, sucking away at the hull of the ship and slowing down its progress and snagging it as you go past. They might yet be able to round the island. It seems they could round the island in a quarter of a mile but it doesn't appear that they're going to get that far. They've got anchors ready, ready to, to trip, but there's no bottom to hold them. The bottom's too too deep here. Booming off will only give them an extra minute, even though they're ready for that eventuality. And they're getting closer and closer with every enormous heave of the sea. 
And again, Mike, this is real jeopardy here. At the beginning of the canon, you might have read this and thought, they're bound to escape because the hero is on the ship. But this is O'Brien. And you know that, you know, ships being sailed by Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin have had all kinds of bad outcomes. And who knows what's going to happen? So there's some genuine, genuine suspense here. They get in really close. The breeze starts. The top gallant sails fill. It dies. Then another breeze fills. And the ship gathers way. And it's it's a beautiful moment. Jack is very, very low-key and cool about it. He sends a midshipman below and says, Pray tell Dr. Maturin with my compliments that if he is at leisure, I should like to show him the north side of Inaccessible <laughs> Island. And this, Mike, means that they're saved. Yeah. Wow. That was, you know, it's it's funny. I, I really wondered here. I was thinking like you, Ian, hold on. You know, like yeah. bad things have happened. <laughs> bad yeah. things could happen again. This is not, you know, we're not watching the Hallmark Channel right now. So, Uh-oh. well, Jack is, is later sitting in his great cabin writing this serial letter that he's always writing to Sophie. And, and he's, it's funny. He's thinking, you know, I've got this peace and quiet to do this. And, and O'Brien tells us, well, you know, the crew is, is you know, making all this incredible noise with the rigging. The bosun is roaring. Stephen and Fox are shooting at bottles. Fielding is, you know, kind of stumping around up top with his crutches and his plastered leg. But Jack doesn't hear any of that. And, right. and he's torn. You know, he wants to tell Sophie of their tremendous escape, but he can't do that unless he also tells us about the mortal danger, the horror of that last cable's length and how inevitable their destruction was. And that, you know, O'Brien tells us it's a feeling that's still strongly upon Jack. And he wants to share, as O'Brien writes, his immeasurable relief and present joy in living. You know, when you've had those close calls and you, you know, you got that, he thinks, but he can't do that. And so he writes a very watered down version and, you know, says about how the crew handled themselves very well. And he concludes, of course, she's not the surprise, Mm -hmm. but she is a fine, responsive little ship. And I shall always love her for the way she took that breath of air off inaccessible. (laughs) <laughs> Talk about, you know, kind of burying the lead and and, and really downplaying something here. Yeah. And, and very generous and very calm as well of Jack. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of remembering here that all the way through, we've presumed that people might be joining the canon for the first time because of the publishing situation in the US. Right. That, that this is their chance to learn, you know, the, the leadership characteristics of, of Jack Aubrey that we've had course to talk about before. And... We've also done a, a great thing for Jack, which is personifying the ship. You know, yes. the, the horrible old leopard remained the horrible old leopard, but the surprise and the Sophie and some of the other ships that we've had have ended up with characters of their own. And Jack is talking about the Diane here. You know, it's not quite as beautiful as his first love, the surprise, but but still a lovable ship. Um, she's certainly not the surprise. O'Brien reminds us that she's not a thoroughbred, that she doesn't have maneuverability like the surprise does. Both ships have got good and bad qualities, but as O'Brien says, there was no doubt which ship Jack Holy loved. Even though he wanted to be part of the Royal Navy again and wanted it with all of his being, Jack still really is missing his time aboard the Surprise as a letter of Mark, sailing where and when he pleased, uh, carrying on her private and effective war against the enemy as she saw fit with the company of you know, the finest picked hands with Tom Pullings, his second command, with that kind of easiness, that easygoing atmosphere that the Royal Navy can't match, where the Royal Navy has this formal and starchy and severe tone, 
The surprise was not a democracy, but neither were the foremast hands so far removed from the officers nor treated roughly by inferior officers such that marines were needed to prevent mutiny. And Mike, it wasn't that many books ago that Jack would absolutely not look upon the idea of being a private man of war, a letter of mark. He would not look upon that as anything other than, you know, the lowest of the low. And now he's looking back on that and thinking, well, it wasn't so bad. Jack knows that the Diane's crew is not mistreated. He knows that he's fortunate so far in his offices. He knows his offices because he's still following this rather old school declining custom of inviting the officer of the watch and the midshipman of the morning and forenoon watch to dine with him. And he still accepts an invitation to go dine with the gun room on a Sunday. And therefore he knows his officers, he knows their faults. But as the text says here, tyranny was not one of them. So Jack's able to reflect on, so far, a reasonably successful composition here of officers and the ship's company. Yeah. And, and, we, and we still, you know, we still are seeing this kind of Jack that we know, even of old, where, you know, he's kind of putting down his success, not to himself, but to, well, you know, kind of things, you know, I, I like this, but this has still got this. And, it, you know, he kind of continues thinking, you know, he's, he's got a good crew here, a higher proportion of able seamen than most Navy ships. And, and that, you know, he's reflecting that by the Tropic of Capricorn, even the press men were pretty well suited to naval life. The gun crews could fire three well-directed broadsides in five and a half minutes. Now, it's not the surprises timing, he thinks, but it's really good for a newly commissioned ship. And, and Jack believes that much of this is down to the nightly great gun competitions, which are, yeah. you know, increasing their skill and bringing the men together. You know, they love the noise. They love the power. And O'Brien says, and the sense of occasion, the wild extravagance. So the, you know, the crew members are telling each other that every two broadsides costs the captain an ordinary seaman's pay for the year. You know, they're so <laughs> blown away that... You know, Jack is paying for all this out of his own pocket. And and they really come to love and pamper these almost two-ton cannons, these brutal instruments that could easily maim them. And they paint their gun's name up above their ports. We saw this in the movie, you know, with yeah, the names right. painted yeah. there. I love that. However, Jack does know that there are some who would still run if given the opportunity so we learned he's going far south of the Cape. You know, he's going to be going well below Africa, not stopping at the Cape there for water and supplies. He doesn't want to give any of his crew members chance to, uh, to hop off here. He doesn't. So again, we've been here before these concerns that Jack has from time to time about the manning of the ship and keeping, you know, keeping his men from running. This is a, this has been a constant worry of his. Another constant worry is midshipmen. And their character and their education. Um, I, I really like this episode where he's calling in the midshipmen, the, the young gentlemen, to to show where they're up to in their education. And these are older midshipmen who are coming up to the point where they might want to try and pass for lieutenant. He doesn't leave very much of this education to the sailing master. He likes to train them himself. And this is the kind of voyage where he can really dig into this. He's serving the, the joint roles of chaplain and schoolmaster. And he's helping these two younger guys, Harper and Reed, to spell, to learn arithmetic, to do spherical trigonometry and navigation. Seymour and Bennett, these two older guys then, are about to try to pass for lieutenant. And Jack says, okay, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to review what you've learned. I'm going to teach you some more. And on this particular day, Jack says, show me your journals. And no captain, including Jack, 
had ever asked these two characters to show up their journals. I, I can remember as a uh, as a newly qualified mechanical engineer being asked to keep a journal and finding it the most tedious thing ever. Anyhow, when you're on that path of professional development, professional education, just like lawyers and physicians and everybody else, they have to keep notes. He finds their most recent entries and he does what a savvy schoolmaster would do, I think, and holds up two entries for comparison here. Really funny. Actually, a really contemporary moment here as well, because guess what? He finds these entries are almost identical and says, you guys are going to be failed for copying from each other. And, And they say, first of all, they kind of deny it a little bit. They said, we haven't copied from each other. We used material from the Mariner's Companion and added some style from a friend. And they say they've each done their own calculations and they show them their workings of their, their sun sites. And it turns out that this friend's style is the reason that they had both referred to a sprightly penguin who, the text says, brings to mind Virgil's Remigium Alarum. And Jack says, well, you know, maybe you're taking a, a, a calculated risk that captains on the board passing you for a lieutenant won't look at this. But if they do, you're going to be disrespecting them. Captains don't like to be made fun of. And Bennett says, well, we've got this, you know, we have calculated this out, that our names are so far apart in the alphabet that we won't be examined on the same day. And I can almost tell that Jack is almost going, yeah, yeah, point here. <laughs> but he realizes that the oral answers about seamanship and navigation. He realizes that their family's status and interests, he realizes that, that their naval connections are all likely to be more important. So he thinks they can get away with this as long as they take out this style stuff in the fair copy and just keep to plain official prose and they'll be okay. I'm like, I, I love the fact that we've got an 18th century version of Wikipedia and student plagiarism going on here 200 years ahead of the way it is these days. And there's a Latin tag in here, remigium alarum. That's got to mean something. We've got to find something to dig underneath there, right? Yeah, and this is this is fascinating here. So I, I'm not quite sure what O'Brien's trying to tell us here, but this is from the Aeneid, book four. So this is Virgil, as I said. And it's a phrase that can mean both the beating of wings and the rowing of oars. And huh. and it's, it's where Virgil has kind of metaphorically transformed uh, Daedalus's flight into a sea voyage and and this phrase, you know, serving sort of dual purpose. Now it could just be that. And, and it's great because we've got this and it's, it's got a, you know, a sea voyage thing, but fascinatingly, uh, St. Ambrose and St. Augustine both use this exact same phrase when they're describing kind of the liberation of the soul from, from matter, you know, how do we get saved if you will? And um, Ambrose uses it when he's interpreting some of the passages from Psalms, which liken the soul to a bird. So, you know, get this beating of wings kind of thing. And this this kind of metaphor takes it from, you know, we're kind of saved by and, and I'm adding a little here, an uninterrupted sequence of good works to the ultimate remitum alarum. The crucified Christ. Now, this is according to a couple theologians' work back in 2005. So it's not something. Well, and, and in 1966, there was a Dante study that that kind of made the same point. So not something that Patrick O'Brien would have seen. However, we know from other things that he's he's certainly well aware of some of the early church fathers' writings. So and this that this phrase would have been used so often. So. I'm kind of fascinated. We'll see a couple other. We've, you know, we've mentioned recently that there's a lot of liturgical and kind of religious faith-based references going on in O'Brien recently. 
Yeah, and and interestingly, it's the penguin that's calling this to mind, not the action of the ship, like in Virgil. So O'Brien's linking the natural history and the classical world and the philosophical world all together. It's great. It's great. Great point, Ian. So Jack calls then for this midshipman, Clark or Clerk, and tells Clark Clerk that he will not have the experienced hands blackguarded. He won't have a youngster like midshipman Clark Clerk addressing foul language to a seaman old enough to be his father, a man who can't reply. And before Clark Clerk can answer, Jack tells him not to try to justify it based on the man's behavior. He says, there's no defense for this. Off you go. Close the door on your way out. And Mike, apart from us catching up with some of the tropes of this is how Jack Aubrey likes to be with his midshipmen, we've we've seen this before. I'm, I'm thinking back to the Ionia mission, Lord Elphinstone being told off by Jack for... Uh, you know, for, for calling Awkward Davies names, I think it was. Again, we're just getting a little reminder here, a little background continuity about where Jack likes to be and how he likes his midshipmen, his junior trainee officers to behave. Well, I, I always love, you know, I, I always watch, you know, our listening stats from countries all over the world. So I'd love to hear the listeners. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Clark C- or Clerk? C-L-E-R-K-E, Clark, Clerk, or something else entirely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Stephen comes in. Uh, after after Clark Clark has left, and Killick has him all well dressed and presentable. I can almost kind of see Killick kind of bringing him in, you know, by the shoulders here. <laughs> and Stephen says Killick and Fielding are both insisting that that Jack is hosting a dinner for the envoy today. And Jack himself is surprised. He said, "I I thought that was the day before." <laughs> uh, I, I think Jack might be teasing Stephen here. I mean, I think it could go either way the way it's written. It's funny. It's exactly what I thought. I thought Jack is putting him all and going, oh, I think that was yesterday. Like Jack wouldn't imagine that. But then Jack is worried about his cook because his oh, cook does not yeah. do well with short notice. So it's almost like he's like, so I cut, well, wait a minute. Is he putting Steven on or is he real? And so he asks Killick, you know, well, what about my cook? And he's not to worry. I've already soused the pig's face. I've given your cook a proper heads up. You know, Wilson is, is working on it. And I found him a very fresh cuttlefish that the men caught today to serve. So Fielding and Reed come in, you know, and they're all waiting, drinking Madeira together, catching up until Fox and his secretary arrive. Now, Killick, who O'Brien tells us doesn't like Fox, you know, gives gives Fox about two minutes with the Madeira and announces yeah. the dinner served. So like, you know, no Madeira for you. <laughs> and, and we're now all set for, you talk about, we've seen this before, a classic Patrick O'Brien dining scene. Absolutely. Uh, the, the soused pig face goes very well as the first course. Killick comes in with the cuttlefish high on a silver platter. And might we know that any much anticipated dish held high on a silver platter is a sight gag waiting to happen. Killick's foot catches on a flag. Yeah, this is like Laurel and Hardy. Um, right. The, the flag is draped over one of the cannons. Killick spills butter from the platter into Jack's lap and the cuttlefish is on the deck. And just like in past scenes, we have repair work to do and maybe even long-lasting damage on people's wardrobes here. Jack's waistcoat and his breeches, thankfully not the nankeen trousers, are completely wrecked. <laughs> and, you know, hilarity and upheaval all round. The dinner is set back in motion and Stephen says... That was a lapsus calami, indeed. And if his name was Aubrey at this point, he would have said, do you smoke it? But like lots of Stephen's good remarks, he doesn't kind of stick a button on it and nobody notices. There's no immediate response. Um, Fox, we learn, had been spared by the melted butter. He'd also gained considerable moral advantage from the disaster. 
and he could afford to dispense with a trifle of it. I do not think I quite follow you, sir, he said. I'm thinking like, yeah, pain in the ass. I do not think I quite follow you, sir. Stephen says, oh, it is only a miserable little play on words. This cuttlefish, which is a loligo, a calamari, has a horny internal shell like a pen, so very like that the animal is sometimes called a penfish. And as you will recall, he added, speaking to his opposite neighbour, the midshipman, a lapsus calami is a slip of the pen. I do wish I'd understood it at first, said Reed. I should have laughed like anything. <laughs> so... I love, again, we've got this switching of roles between Jack and Stephen. Stephen is the one dispensing dad jokes badly and having to explain them. Stephen is the one being sucked up to by the midshipmen who are going, oh, sir, I thought your joke was topping, really. And I also like that there's a little second layer of O'Brien joking going on here. William Callamy, of course, was the midshipman, not not right back at the beginning of the canon, but he joined us in the Ionian mission. Wow. Um, He was the one, Callamy was the one who staggered around um, carrying a calf because the older midshipman told him it would build up his strength. And now we're getting this little joking explanation about how Calamy's surname might be related to the word for pen. And maybe that's important for O'Brien as a writer. Who knows? Well done. That's brilliant. The dinner, despite the damage to Jack's wardrobe, the dinner's still going ahead here. There are more excellent dishes being served. There's good wine and there's good port. And Mr. Envoy Fox tells Stephen that he's found some Malay texts that Ahmed can read to Stephen to help him learn the language. And he asks Stephen to add notes to help Fox to practice his Malay. So Fox is just kind of catching up a little bit. He's aware maybe that they're making steady progress towards towards Java and Malaysia and that he's going to have to pick up on his language skills. While all this is going on, Lieutenant Fielding and Midshipman Reed leave. Young Reed is starting to talk too much from overconsumption of port um, he had an overpour into his glass from Edwards, and we learned that Fox and Edwards and Jack and Stephen, who are the ones left here now, are sitting down for their usual game of whist. And Mike, I had, a, I had a really nice moment here at the description of the whist. Severe, rigorous, and determined whist. And if there are any whist players out there, you'll all know that it's a for sure a rigorous and determined kind of a game. And it reminded me that Hornblower in the Forrester novels was a whist player. And I think severe, rigorous, and determined is a pretty good description of Hornblower's character. Well done. Well done. Well, we, you know, and, and this whist play, we, we get a little bit more insight into Fox's character as well. Yeah. You know, O'Brien tells us that Edwards is the best player by far, but that he always defers to Fox. And Fox is, of course, always overbearing. So that means that Jack and Stephen usually win more than they lose. <laughs> so I, I think what we're getting is a message here from O'Brien about you know continuing to paint Fox's personality, particularly in the way he competes and interacts with what we might call teammates or colleagues, but clearly he doesn't see them as such. So perhaps another little warning sign here. Now, yeah. they don't get to find out who wins tonight because Stephen is called to the sick bay by McMillan, who was the Surgeon Graham's young surgeon's mate. Now we kind of find out, we remember that Graham was left ashore when he didn't answer the Blue Peter in Plymouth. And now O'Brien tells us that when Graham was left ashore, Stephen had immediately taken his place. And Stephen was really surprised at how pleased the seamen seemed to have been that, that he did that. Now, Killick had told the crew that Stephen's a real physician. He had treated the Duke of Clarence, that he'd been offered the surgeon of the fleet appointment by Lord Keith. But 
The crew liked that Stephen, unlike Graham, did not charge them for their venereal disease medicines. Stephen's philosophy was he wanted these folks to present themselves as quickly, as early as possible when the disease could be more easily cured. You know, and he wasn't going to do like most of the surgeons would do and charge them for this medicine. But the crew was most impressed that Stephen was a volunteer and that he took excellent professional care of them. They were, as O'Brien writes, touchingly grateful. You know, hmm. I think it's kind of a neat thing here that the crew, you know, in, in terms of forming their impressions of Jack and Stephen, they admire that Jack is digging out of his own pocket to pay for their powder expenses, that Stephen is providing pro bono services and doing it really well. They're looking at how Jack and Stephen give of themselves. You know, here, as you said earlier, in some excellent leadership points, which sadly, um, you know, in my experience, are often lost on many executives today. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point. <sighs> so Stephen, the volunteer, Stephen, who's stepping in here as surgeon and occasionally physician, sends a message back to the cabin that he can't return. And if Mr. Edwards wants to see an amputation, he should come now with, with a little ghoulish extra remark, preferably in an old coat. And that made me smile. So the whist party's broken up for a while. Jack and Fox stay and chat about minor things. They're talking about how their private stores might run out before they reach Batavia. O'Brien makes this nice observation about the connection between these two men on board ship. Relations were curious. He says, not formal, not cordial, close acquaintance. He talks about them showing the same exact civility and small good officers that they had reached by the end of the first two weeks. And this had continued on and not really progressed. They hadn't really learned to get close and become friends, despite all the proximity, despite all the interaction with the clearing for action. Despite Fox's interest in the gun exercises, despite all the dining back and forth, all this whist, all this chess, despite all this, Fox and Jack are really just, you know, on, on how to do terms rather than really becoming friends. And Mike, this sounds like it could be another warning signal or, you know, an, a little message about how we might be going to take the character of Fox here as the story continues. Right. In the morning, Stephen comes out and he finds that Jack, and Fielding, the Master, and Dick Richardson, third lieutenant, are all, as O'Brien writes, looking at the sky in a very knowing manner. Mm. And Jack asks how Stephen's patient is. And, and Stephen thinks to himself, well, I've got a lot of patients. I've got two men who are almost dead of syphilitic gamata and another serious pulmonary case. But, and O'Brien writes, he knew that to a naval mind, only an amputation really counted. Yeah. <laughs> so Stephen says, stuff. well, you know, He's much more comfortable than I would have imagined. And Jack's glad to hear it because, as he says to Stephen, you know, all the patients are soon going to have to be moved. And, you know, I think Stephen is probably perhaps a little wondering about that. And Jack is pointing out a cloud, uh, you know, and asking what he sees. And Stephen sees kind of a faint uh, prismatic halo. Well, all the guys that are looking up with Jack go forward to tell Stephen that this is a wind gall. And then they recite a verse, Wingall at morn, fine weather, all gone. And Jack, you know, Steve was kind of looking at Jack thinking, well, you don't seem too upset about that. Jack's, you know, really excited about getting into the true westerlies and is happy to have this uncommon glow coming behind him. So this Wingall was funny because it's a malady in horses. You know, it's a fairly well-known one. So I'm like, Wingall, what? 
But there's a nautical definition here. And and this goes back a ways, I think. A luminous halo on the edge of a distant cloud, according to definitions.net, where there is rain usually seen in the wind's eye and looked upon as a sure precursor of stormy weather. It's also an atmospheric effect of prismatic colors. Likewise, indicates bad weather if seen to leeward. So we're seeing this portent of what Jack regards as a helpful blow, but what everybody else might see as mm-hmm. potentially damaging bad weather. Like we've never been in that situation before. Fielding, therefore, heads in to look in on Rakes along with Stephen. And Rakes is the, the man with the amputated leg. This, this is very O'Brien, right? We hear them talking about the amputation. And then later in the second paragraph, we find out who had his leg amputated. And then after that, we find out why the leg got amputated. <laughs> so we're, we're just expected to believe that this amputation is just sitting there. And we haven't yet found out whether it's significant and what's the nature of the, you know, the impact on the character and the story here. Fielding looking at the situation with Rakes, the amputee, has some fellow feeling for him. Stephen notes that both men had suffered broken legs from recoiling guns, fielding the lieutenant because an inexperienced gun captain had pulled the lanyard too soon to fire the gun whilst fielding was teaching that particular gun crew. Rakes, unluckily, because the forward breaching had broken, throwing his gun sideways. Rakes had a compound fracture, however, had a worse fracture. Gangrene had set in after several otherwise promising days. Fielding had been the lucky one. He'd had his leg set in this Basra method, this plaster method, and uh, was looking like he was on the mend here. So this is the situation with men being on the mend. Meanwhile, the ship is preparing itself for some injuries as well. Jack's doing all his heavy weather tricks here. He's got the bosun and the sailmaker rigging the ship for the storm. He set aside all of his, his his old standbys here, double preventer stays, light horses to the mastheads. There's a whole load of storm canvas being set out, ready for a stormy wind here. The purser sets out Magellan jackets, these kind of early versions of like oilskin jackets for the crew. Stephen has set up a subsidiary sick berth on the after platform of the all-up deck. That's right down in the smelly part of the ship, using part of the cockpit and part of the captain's storeroom because this area is less likely to flood in storms and in the kind of seas that you get in these high latitudes. The patient's messmates had brought down these injured guys carefully wrapped up in their hammocks. So Stephen here is getting all set for foul weather as well. O'Brien goes on to tell us that now Stephen, as surgeon, dines in the gunroom by, by right. You know, he used to have to be invited as a guest, but now as the surgeon, he, he can, you know, he can mess there, he can sleep there. And, you know, he really likes the people in the gunroom. And because Stephen is the only one of them who sailed this far south, they all have questions about the seas there now. So Stephen spends this meal answering their questions and describing, you know, being on the leopard in, in the seas in the 50s. He's talking about all these quarter to half mile between these really high crests, high enough to hide a ship of the line that in between crests, the ship would get becalmed. And, and that's when the crests sometimes would crash over and threaten to broach them. Yeah. He describes these great mountains of ice, you know, which spread out far more below the surface of the water than above, that they're as perilous as any reef. They're invisible at night. And they come with these wind blasts that confound the steering. Now, Welby, the Marine officer, I, I think kind of trying to whistle through the graveyard a little bit, says, well, surely they must be uncommon in areas frequented by ships. And Stephen says, well, I'll assure you that we pass scores of these ice mountains, beautiful aquamarine 
with the surf raging against their sides and breaking mountains high. And indeed, he tells him, our ship was partially crushed, almost sunk, and had its rudder torn off by one which was a half mile wide. Hmm. What do you oh. think, Ian? Have we have we seen anything like this before? Well, I mean, it, it's funny. Stephen is now playing the role of sage foreteller of imminent disaster here. He's playing the role of the, the old seaman. There was a line, one of the early books, Tom Pullings, you know, telling everybody else about how his dad or his granddad had had these terrible experiences. And now Stephen is doing the same thing, foretelling. And from a story point of view, he must surely be foretelling more disaster. He's piling up the jeopardy here for the Diane and her ship's company. I, I, it's, it's almost too much, Mike. I, I don't think I can stand the jeopardy. I, I think we need to take a short break, take a little little walk around the deck here, and come back calm and ready to contemplate the storm right after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. All right. Well, welcome back. I hope everybody grabbed a belaying pin to try to ward off this this imminent disaster. That afternoon, Stephen is called up on deck to see some Grampuses. I think we've heard about Rizzo's dolphin in an earlier book. Like looks like almost like a large dolphin with with kind of a whale shaped face. Later, he's called up to view the water, which has changed. It's become even clearer and more aquamarine. And we get another one of these tones. It's he says, you know, just like Stephen remembered from the leopard. But Stephen spends pretty much the whole afternoon studying with Ahmed. He's trying to learn the language, but Ahmed is too deferential. He, you know, he won't ever correct him. But luckily, as we know, Stephen has a way with language, an accurate and attentive ear. So he's making good progress. When they wrap up, he decides to head up to the quarter deck. But there's this really intense flash of lightning. And it, it, you know, O'Brien tells us that it lights up the hatchways all the way down the ship. And then there's this enormous clap of thunder. And he writes a rainstorm of prodigious violence. Well, Reed, you know, is kind of coming down the ladders. Stephen's coming up and, and, you know, he says, come and see it. He's never seen anything. And this is young Reed in all my time at sea. And I, I couldn't help but <laughs> giggle at this, you know, you know, right. All year and a half or whatever it has been. I don't know. But but then Reed, you know, thoughtfully adds, and neither has the master. So <laughs> a little more gravitas here. And and Stephen goes up and on the deck, it's completely black. He can't even see the bulkhead. But then there's this like strobe effect as this lightning continues, illuminating everything momentarily, then going dead black again. You know, Jack is shouting, but all Stephen hears is beats Guy Fawkes night. And then Jack in one of these flashes sees that Stephen is kind of up to his ankle in waters and he's, he's wearing his slippers. Uh, he's, he's not having that. He takes Stephen below. And Stephen is saying to him when they get down there that, you know, this must be what a great fleet action is like. And Jack says, yep, has, you know, everything except the smoke here. <laughs> and Jack tells Ahmed, you know, to take Stephen below. You know, he doesn't want Stephen sleeping there in the cabin tonight because Jack's going to be coming and going throughout this storm. And he says to him, and O'Brien writes, see that the doctor's cot is aired and make sure his feet are thoroughly dry before he turns in. Again, we, you know, kind of the medical advice of the time. And I remember, I think uh, Sir Joseph Blaine telling him one time, you know, you have to make sure you dry them off. You know, you can't just uh, wipe them and everything. 
Ah, oh, dear me. So dry feet, a little bit of tender care there being administered to Stephen on behalf of Jack. In the morning, the wind is still blowing. They're healing 25 degrees. They're making 12 knots, which is a real decent clip through cold, tumbling seas. Remember, they're far south um, in the 40s here. There's a fierce, biting wind. Jack goes back into his regular routine. He has guests for breakfasts. But the guests are Lieutenant Elliot and Midshipman Green, and these are not his favorite company. But never mind. Jack goes on and says he thinks that it's not so much the iniquitous imposition of income tax that was causing the decline of this form of entertainment, but rather the boredom and the labor on the part of the host. Poor old Jackie. He's having to put up with very indifferent company here from Elliot and Green. Even though by naval tradition, Elliot could not start a subject, and therefore is kind of responsible for, for giving answers to subjects that are set up by Jack. He still makes no real effort at responding, and Green the midshipman only says yes, sir, and no, sir. So this is very unsatisfactory for Jack, who would like some company, and they leave. Stephen comes in, and he says to Jack, turn in, brother, you look destroyed. And Jack says, ah, uh-uh, maybe not yet. He says, quite soon, but not yet. He calls for his clerk, Elijah Butcher, to help him take Humboldt's readings. And Humboldt, remember, he's the climatologist, oceanologist, oceanographer, scientist, pioneer, whose measures of salinity and temperature and ocean currents Jack is helping to carry forward around the world. Butcher brings the Humboldt equipment, including the cyanograph. And Mike, we're still not sure what the cyanograph is. If, if it's some kind of photographic precursor instrument, I have no idea why he would be using it right now. But anyhow, right. Jack gets on and makes these readings, sends some readings down to Stephen with the message that he must stay on deck. Stephen's not surprised. He knows that, especially after having indifferent company for breakfast, Jack is really enjoying these conditions. This is the kind of sailing that Stephen knows that Jack loves. And O'Brien tells us it's more than just Jack's love of this kind of sailing, that you know, Jack's thinking to himself, this is the first opportunity He's really had to drive the Diane, and he wants to know what it's going to take for her to run her fastest. He wants to know her essentially the way he knows the surprise. So, you know, he's at 45 degrees, he's steering due east, and he's starting to learn her capabilities when she's pushed to the limit. There are many changes of sail, very exact trimming, and very exact observation. When I do this, what does she do here? And this, O'Brien tells us, begins a series of splendid days in which the Diane runs 300 miles between noon to noon. And Jack only comes down, he tells us, to eat or fall asleep in his elbow chair and then go back on deck here. And though the progress is splendid, you know, we continue to be reminded the weather is still southern winter. It's gray, there's sparse daylight, cold air mixed with rain, sleep mixed with seawater, and the decks are always awash. And by the way, three, 300 miles is, is decent by the standards of any sailing vessel, you know, even these days. That's pretty decent. That's 12 and a half knots day, um, you know, day in, day out. Wow. Stephen comes up sometimes, not so much to enjoy the weather and the sailing, but to see the albatross. And Stephen's really taken. We know that sailors are fond of albatrosses and they have all these superstitious attachments to them. Stephen's really enjoying getting the chance to be up close. Fox comes to consult Stephen. He's saying his digestive system is upset. Um, Mike, I've got a feeling that, again, we've had this before, you know, worthy genteel types come wanting to tap up the doctor for some company with some kind of unnamed gastric 
kind of upheaval going on here. And Stephen gives him a series of placebos. He very artfully is changing the color of these chalk tablets as he hands them over. But he gives him yet another different colored pill. And they get on talking about albatrosses. And Stephen is convinced that Fox's problem is not a physical one. He thinks that Fox is simply lonely. He's an able man, but he's got this dominant personality. And almost without realizing it, without thinking, he's used this domination to crush his secretary, Edwards, so that Edwards can no longer be a companion. And therefore, Fox has brought this loneliness on himself. Fox might well want to know other people, but does not wish to be known. Yeah, he likes to have insight into other people, but he doesn't want other people to have access to him. Does that sound like anybody we know in the authorial line? I don't know. (laughs) He's condescending, is Fox. He assumes superior knowledge and status. And all of that mean that Jack and Stephen are no longer happy to see him. So we heard in general terms about how he and Jack are not really kind of finding the sparks. And it turns out that this is a general pattern of behavior for Fox as well. Ah, dear me. I wonder how this is going to end up. Stephen then thinks some more about this. And he believes that Fox regards the mission as important and sees that perhaps it's about personal success for Fox. Success in the mission is going to gratify ambition and self-esteem on the part of Fox. But even beyond this, Stephen thinks that Fox is flattered by the idea of being an envoy, flattered by its externals, maybe more flattered and more kind of vainglorious in this than Fox, as a man of his abilities, has a right to be. He never invites any of the officers to dine with him. He asks them questions on the gun deck, but often responds as if their knowledge and ignorance is unimportant. He's a cultivated man of the world and doesn't need to know these kind of things. Jack and Stephen, therefore, have got no time for him. Jack's busy sailing the ship. Stephen's busy classifying his Tristan de Kuna specimens, learning the Malay language, looking after a sick bay full of injuries from the frozen weather. And they've really got no time for Fox. And Mike, this leaves us wondering, I think, where this is going to go and what kind of cover for loneliness Fox is going to seek next. Oh, it's a, it's a good point. And, I, and I've always been scratching my head. You know, I remember Stephen talking to Blaine about, now, is there any hierarchy here? And thinking, yeah. you know, this is what, what that kind of, this nexus, a consultative nexus. I'm wondering how well that consultative nexus is going to work here. Well, yeah. early one morning, Jack calls Stephen on deck. And, and you know, Stephen goes up to see these high, beautiful skies. And, you know, Brian tells us that, they're, you know, they're darker blue than any that Stephen had ever seen. And then there's this full array of beautiful sails set against those skies with the sea also an immensely luminous blue reflecting that blue into the air. So it's it's going up into the air, it's going up into the shadows, and it's going up into these sails. Everything is, is stretching immeasurably across this orderly array of these giant great crests, all sweeping eastward in this even majestic progression. And, and all of this I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but this, you know, O'Brien has this stunning language here. Yeah, and great. and great. in the midst, you know, O'Brien tells us of, of this, you know, the ship going up and down in these sometimes threatening crests, the sun, which they haven't seen for a long time, comes up and it's touching the wing of an albatross that flies so close to the deck that Stephen can almost touch it. And, and you know, after all this beautiful writing, you know, you know, we, we hear that Stephen and Jack are taken with this beautiful sunrise. And I, I have to say, I was as well. I mean, this was just yeah. 
incredible. This is it's lovely, isn't it? I mean, amongst some of what you could call kind of retreads that we have going on in this chapter, you know, greatest hits that we're hitting back again for a second or third time. This is beautiful. And it really puts you right there with them. So much so that Stephen even asks, this is so beautiful. Maybe we should send for Fox and his secretary. And Jack goes, yeah, they were up earlier. They got soaked by a packet of sea sweeping on the deck. They went down to change their clothing. I don't think we'll see them again. So this, this beautiful poetic moment here is just for Jack and Stephen. Stephen notices this discreet general smile passing from one end of the deck to the other except for one ship's boy who lets out a great horse laugh and flees the scene. So there's a lot of merriment at the expense of Fox and his secretary who've been swamped here. Fox, in many ways, should be a model civilian passenger. Like, There's lots about him, in theory, to like. He doesn't complain about how his cabin gets struck down during gun practice. He cheers the shots of the crew's guns during that practice. But the seamen still have this this scorn for him, this contempt for him as a landlubber. And maybe for Fox, it's not only maintained, it's even increased. Mm. Mm. And while all this is going on, we get all these kind of ongoing social chat about Jack and food for the men and dinner. And, you know, while the Diane is still a happy, sociable naval family, Fox is making himself an outsider here. Just after noon, the lookout spots a mountain of ice on the starboard bow. And once the ship rises above the swell, Jack spots it as well. It's nearer and bigger than he expected. And at dinner with Richardson, with him, Jack tells Stephen that they're running closer to have a look at the ice. Jack doesn't think it's old ice. He's mm. concerned that it's new ice and that it's going to have what he calls more followers, you know, with it coming from behind an island that's not far off. Um, and he asks Stephen if he's heard this ice, this drift ice tapping on the ship. And they're, you know, they're all noticing it now and hearing it. And and Jack says, you know, that they've shipped a bow grace that is kind of a fender made of rope to protect the sides of the ship. But the rope isn't thick enough to protect their copper. So they've got, again, some added peril here. And this island that he's referring to, um, you know, they're talking about it. And he says that this one is also sometimes called Desolation Island, but it's not their Desolation Island. And he and Stephen tell Richardson about what you know Richardson had missed on their desolation island and the leopard. And Ian, you had pointed out that this is—it seems to be you know this is O'Brien kind of coming back and you know fixing a, a little bit or giving us a little bit more information of something from behind. Yeah. So th- there had been quite a lot of discussion about where the original desolation island of the bo- of the book of the same name where that had been, and some people had said, well, maybe it's Kerguelen. And if you look on Tom Horn's cannonade.net website, look at the mapping there for Desolation Island, you can see there, there are two candidates, one of them which being Kerguelen. And uh, O'Brien is wrapping up this uncertainty for us, saying, yeah, Kerguelen is called Desolation Island by some, but that's not ours. And if you look on Tom's website on cannonade.net, you'll see the real Desolation Island. I, I forget its, its real name now, marked out there. So just like... O'Brien explained where Stephen's spying had come in. He's also reaching back into ancient history and re-explaining the origin of Desolation Island. He's doing, once again, a bit of retroactive continuity, a bit of retconning for us here. Nice. So meanwhile, they they eat their pudding. This is the last that they're going to have for a while because we have low stores. We have rats boldly predating on supplies in in this frozen weather. Jack says, you know, I, I don't like ice islands. He doesn't like icebergs apart from sinking your ship they often seem to cause 
or come before calms. Mm-hmm. And we've already had a couple of bad situations in this chapter with calm and being close to big immovable objects. And guess what? After dinner, they see that the ice is getting nearer. Stephen sees this coloring, this beautiful blue coloring, just like the leopard's unhappy encounter with an iceberg. It's a beautiful object, and it actually has an especially beautiful aspect when viewed from afar. As they watch, one of the island's peaks, O'Brien describes it as having the size of a spired cathedral, leans, falls, and shatters. And there are great blocks and minor icebergs joining all the others in the sea, sending up these jets of white water. And once again, Mike, it's a, it's a really poetic scene. It's really beautiful, but pretty disturbing now because each of these represents a potential collision risk, a potential hazard for the ship. They're standing on the gangway, still watching, when Stephen's approached by one of the crew, who's a former patient, who points out the birds and starts to educate Stephen on the sailors' names for them. And he asks about his messmate, Arthur Grimble. And Mike, this is one of the syphilitic gamata cases that we talked about before the break. This guy, Arthur Grimble, in tertiary syphilis. Stephen and Macmillan, we learn, had operated to relieve pressure on Arthur's brain. That can't have been fun. That, that sounds like mm. one of those trepanning procedures. And Stephen is reassuring. He says, Grimble's in no pain. They'll know in the next few days how the outcome is going to go, but don't be too hopeful. The operation, he says, was a last resort. And if Arthur goes, he goes easy. Ah. Philosophical moment here for Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, meanwhile, is talking with the master. He's thinking about their low water supplies and thinking, wait a minute, these blocks of ice that are floating around here, if we melted one of these, you know, we can replenish our water. But the master says that the sea is, is far too rough right now to pick it up. And says, but maybe if we wait a little while, you know, it's been calming down. Maybe it'll continue to calm down. So Jack asks Mr. Bennett to kind of run up the lookout, come back and you know to Jack's cabin and let him know what he sees. Well, when Jack and Stephen have gotten to their second cup of coffee, Bennett reports. He says, there's another mountain of ice, one point to the starboard bow. And it's the same size as the current one. There are three smaller ones behind it, and then four more due south three leagues off. And Jack, I think Jack realizes there are way too many of these things. And and with the drift ice and everything, and he says, you know, we're just going to have to edge away, even though, you know, we're still too far west. He wishes that he'd never mentioned the calm since the wind has dropped steadily since, you know, since he said that. And Stephen suggests that perhaps Jack's, what he calls his unwilling mind, had really already noticed the wind dropping. And that's what led him to say that. Stephen says, you know, like I know sometimes I'll say I haven't had a cold for six months and then I get one the next day. But it's because my mind realized it the day before. And Jack tells Stephen that he's, and Brian says, an unfailing source of cheer and encouragement, a true Job's muffler. Job's muffler. Job's muffler. <laughs> and so, you know, actually, thegunroom.org is a great resource, too. A, a really historical, wonderful, and still ongoing resource. They have a list of Aubreyisms. And on this one, they're suggesting that perhaps Jack is saying that Stephen is like the man who comforted Job in the Bible, in the Old Testament here. That, so he's like Job's comforter, a comforter being another name for a scarf. Jack has turned this into Job's muffler. So now I will note that in the Bible, the three men who are 
comforting Job are of no comfort whatsoever. They basically keep right. telling Job that all the terrible things happening to him are his fault. So, so this this does resonate here. It's another lovely humorous bit of Aubreyism dropped in there for us. Um, right. By the time we get to Thursday, then the ship's sailing speed has decreased as Jack had expected. There are no longer any strong winds here. Stephen is still sleeping down below to work on his Tristan collections, comes into the gun room for breakfast and notices that the mizzenmast sleeve has been removed, exposing brass and gold leaf. This really splendid sight. This is covering on the mast in the gun room. It's, it's normally kept under this kind of sleeve to keep it from damage. For Sundays and particular feasts, it is uncovered. They've invited the captain, it turns out. They've invited the captain for dinner. They're going to serve out the last of the pig that they have in their stores. Stephen's a little bit concerned that Jack might be upset after immediately before this dinner, he's presided over Arthur Grimble's funeral. And we learned that Arthur Grimble was young. It's, it's funny, Mike, when we're hearing about tertiary syphilis and, you know, passing away easily in the night, I was picturing Arthur Grimble as an old guy, but Arthur Grimble was young, not, not too young to acquire syphilis and not too young to have missed out on Stephen's enlightened policy of early diagnosis. So he's got to the end of his, his days here. He doesn't mention this, though, because he just says the ship's passage is now much smoother and Fielding says, well, that's all because we're out of the 40s. So they've headed back north and they're back into the 30s. It turns out the gunroom was right about Jack's mood. Jack's been present at too many funerals. He's affected, but not too deeply affected. He had indeed been moved by the words, my soul fleeth unto the Lord before the morning watch, I say, before the morning watch. And by the earnest attention of the ship's company following along with the words. And as also by the grief of Grimble's friends as his messmates slid him over the side from under the flag. And Mike, before the morning watch is a very resonant bit of phraseology here. It's part of the Anglican Book of Prayer. It's from Psalm 130. But before the morning watch has a very nautical ring to it. There are a few bits in kind of Anglican liturgy where we keep our naval traditions going here. And I think this might be one. Yeah, and I and I, I love it's it's a great thing, you know. So many of these books seem to be redemption stories, and, and Psalm one thirty is definitely a redemption psalm. Oh, very good, <laughs> really good. Well, you know, the service did dampen Jack's spirit a little bit, but not too much that you know he doesn't enjoy his pork at the gun room, and and afterwards he goes out and he takes his usual moderate weather three mile pace on the windward side of the quarter deck, you know, forty turns four and a half, and again. We've heard this many, many times. And, you know, Jack is kind of thinking back that, you know, sometime before the ill omen of, of Grimble's death, that the wind had changed direction and begun to head them. And Jack is now sailing for Amsterdam Island or New Amsterdam Island. I think we often call it here. Uh, a place which is shown in different longitudes on different charts. And right now in trying to navigate, he's found that his two chronometers have chosen this time to disagree with one another. So he's sailing close hauled, heavy, slow, uh, you know, the ship's inclined to gripe and he's finding he can't come closer than six and a half points. So a lot of difficulty navigating and sailing at the moment. Well, he tells Stephen that they may miss this island, but if they hit it, he will put Stephen ashore for a couple hours while they water. And, and Jack confirms that you're sure, Stephen, there's water on it. And Jack says, yes, that there's this castaway, Perone, you know, reveled in the water there, but admitted that the island is, is a little awkward to come at. 
So Stephen reinforces kind of how much he really wants to see the island. He's trying to get Jack to understand, as, as O'Brien writes, the value of an exceedingly remote island to a naturalist, an uninhabited, fertile, volcanic island covered with luxuriant vegetation and no vile rats, dogs, cats, goats, swine introduced by fools to destroy an Eden, an island untouched for although Perone had spent some time on it, he scarcely left the shore. And, huh. you know, I'm thinking Perone and this, you know, Il Amsterdam, this, this, you know, this uh, Amsterdam island, sure enough, real island, yeah. real Pierre-Francois Perone who was, uh, in fact, a castaway there from 1792 to 1795. And and an industrious guy, he gathered seal skins. He he was a a captain, a sealer, an adventurer. And so while he's shipwrecked, he, well, actually, he was put on the island. The ship that he had been put there by was taken by the British. So nobody came to pick him back up. Uh, But later, an American, actually, it wasn't, an East Indiaman, uh, took him off, took him to New South Wales. And in New South Wales, he became the first officer of an American maritime fur trading ship, the Otter. And he's got all these seal skins that he's brought with him here. And when he left New South Wales, Perone helped a gentleman named Thomas Muir the Younger of Hunters Hill, a Scotsman who'd been transported to New South Wales for sedition, escape. And, and Muir's politics are a lot like Stephen's politics. This is okay. so. No, I think this is O'Brien weaving this in again a little bit too. It, fascinatingly, the Otter, with with Muir as kind of first officer, becomes the first merchant ship to visit Tonga, and you know they have this incredible journey through Tasmania and Hawaii and Sumatra and British Columbia and California, Mexico, Cuba, Spain. And Perone writes this incredible memoir of the whole time. And that's the memoir Stephen's reading here to find out about this island. I, I might, I've, I've got a guess, therefore, this must be a memoir that Patrick O'Brien has read, or at least skimmed and precied, because this is, this is dead on, isn't it? And it's, it's fascinating, too, because it's a very rare book. So you can kind of see O'Brien maybe, you know, going to do his research and getting his hands on this thing. Fabulous. Wow. Oh, excellent. So this famous... Amsterdam Isle, they raise it. They get within sight of it the following Wednesday after 5,000 miles of blue water sailing. But it's directly into the wind with an intense current. Then They're not going to make it. So whereas they were kind of almost brought to to a sticky end by inaccessible, they're not going to quite make it to Amsterdam Island here. The master tells Jack there's no way they can raise it. Jack says, well, what about the water? And Warren, the master, says, well, even without the deluge that we always get when we close to the tropic line, we'll be able to make our way as far as Java with some short allowance. And Jack has to turn to Stephen and apologizes for making what he calls a cock of your island. And compared to the situation that we had in the Master and Commander movie, where Stephen and Jack really fell out about missing one of these naturalizing opportunities, Stephen is very cool about it. He graciously says, we'll visit it one day in the surprise after we've defeated Bonaparte and then... Um, he goes up to look at all the birds that the master had told Jack to point out. Stephen's surprised to find a stink pot, a southern giant petrel, as far away from the Cape as they are. So there's there's still some some natural history for Stephen to to engage with and enjoy here. And after the long, speeding, dangerous, frustrating journey, the ship settles back into more like its usual routine. And O'Brien gives us this nice wrapping up of it all here. 
Now he says it was a matter of repairing or replacing everything that had been broken or strained, of painting, scouring, and above all, sailing the ship northeast in light and variable airs, often contrary, so that jibs and staysails called for perpetual attention. And even when they did reach the southeast trades, they were found barely to deserve their name, either for strength or for constancy. Day after day, they travelled slowly over a vast disk of sea, perpetually renewed. And when Jack gets to the end of his divine service, again, we're back at Sunday in divine service, and he says, world without end, amen, at the end, he might well have been describing this part of the journey. Now, Mike, the, uh, the, the, this, this sounds boring, but it's not all boredom, right? There are opportunities amongst this sameness here. Yeah, exactly. And O'Brien tells us that, you know, Jack and Stephen take advantage of this, you know, quote unquote, eternal sameness. You know, I remember riding out to the Midwest and, you know, completely across Texas and losing radio. There's no radio stations in part of Kansas. And I felt like it was this same mile turning over and over again on a, on a loop. But Jack and Stephen don't feel that way. They return to their music. You know, Stephen's really polishing his language skills here so much so that he even dreams in this language. Jack returns to educating the midshipmen in earnest. And in one of these lessons, Jack asks young Fleming how the last American war started. And Fleming replies, yes, sir. It was about tea, which they did not choose to pay duty on. They called out no reproduction without copulation and tossed it into Boston Harbor. So, well, <laughs> for those of you who sat through American history, you might have yeah. missed that line there. Yeah. Well, Jack's, Jack's a little, I'm not sure about this too. So later, you know, he asked Stephen about the, you know, the Americans rallying cry in 1775. And O'Brien writes, this is Stephen responding, no representation, no taxation. Jack says, nothing about copulation. Stephen says, nothing at all. At that period, the mass of Americans were in favor of copulation. And I can almost <laughs> remember back that far. <laughs> so it could not have been no reproduction without copulation, asked Jack. Why, my dear, that is the old natural philosopher's watchword, as old as Aristotle and quite erroneous. We've al already heard in you know this last chapter about asexual reproduction here. And Stephen goes on to lecture Jack about that. But you know, leave it to O'Brien to break up this endless bout of sameness with some excellent humor and, and a joke, which, as I mentioned, is probably to, as true today as it was then in American yeah. population. <laughs> so now, again, you'll never look at the Boston Tea Party quite the same. Um, <laughs> that, that, like we said before, they're headed north now. So they're passing back up toward the tropic. They're back under the Tropic of Capricorn. And the master had been saying, we're going to get some rain. The rain is visible in the distance, but not a drop falls on the Diane. Stephen gets back into his shooting match with Fox again, and now they're more evenly matched. As Stephen's getting back his practice. He's getting his eye in. And Fox asks to resume his medical consultations. Stephen thinks that, again, the complaints are intellectual starvation and a desire for conversation. And he, on the one hand... You know, he feels obliged to help, but on the other hand, he wants to limit his contact with Fox because they still need to going to be able to work together effectively when they reach Pulo Prabang. And if they've got to the point of a complete falling out and Stephen resisting his company, then that's not going to work so well. And Stephen is watching Jack walk on one side of the quarter deck and Fox and Edwards on the other. And the text says here, once again, 
his mind turned to the question of integrity, a virtue that he prized very highly in others, although there were times when he had painful doubts about his own. But on this occasion, he was thinking about it less as a virtue than as a state, the condition of being whole. And it seemed to him, and I'm absolutely with him here, it seemed to him that Jack was a fair example. He, Jack, was as devoid of self-consciousness as a man could be. And in all the years Stephen had known him, he had never seen him act a part. Fox, on the other hand, occupied a more or less perpetual stage, playing the role of an important figure, an imposing man and the possessor of uncommon parts. To be sure, he was at least, to some extent, all three, but would rarely let it alone. He wished to be acknowledged. And Stephen goes on and reflects that this was probably an unconscious performance. Fox never, to use the seaman's phrase, topped it the knob. But his reaction to a real or imagined slight makes it plain. Fox doesn't want to be liked. He wants to be superior and to get all the respect that's due to superiority. But as Stephen notes, many people, above all the foremast hands, refuse to be impressed. And Mike, we're going to talk about this again later, but I'm really reminded of Lord Clonfort here back in Mauritius Command. Right. You know, somebody right. Who's, who's really deceiving himself with this desire for the respect um, of, of others for what he perceives as his own great own, own personal and moral strength here. Yeah. As, as you say, you know, time and time we come back to, we've seen a variation on this before. And, and the same thing is running through my mind as well. Well, it's, it's five bells and, and Jack's usual early dinner is ready. And he invites Stephen to head down for the last of the sheep called Agnes waiting for us. And, and I can't help, I don't know whether this is O'Brien with a little French joke or a little, you know, a, a, a little Catholic mass joke or actually my Lutheran, you know, service the same way. The Agnes, the yeah, Agnes Day, Day, perhaps, I don't know. Anyway, Killick takes the sheep's bones away after dinner and Jack tells Stephen that they're down to ship's provision tomorrow, included salted beef soaked in seawater since they're going to have to cut the fresh water ration. Now, Jack's planning on telling the hands tonight and having some special dancing, you know, as consolation. And again, this, you know, we can, you know, get this visceral impact of it's a different time. You're not going to have fresh water, but guys, I'll let you all dance with each other tonight <laughs> on the deck. <laughs> okay, that's great. I'm loving that. I think this is wonderful here. Well, over coffee, and, and you know, in you, you tagged this here earlier, yeah, over coffee, Stephen says, do you remember I once said of Confort that for him, truth was what he could make others believe? And, and as you say, and we remember Lord Confort from Mauritius Command, you know, another excellent character study, one that, by the way, ended tragically. Ooh, and Jack yeah. says he, he does remember. And Stephen says, I expressed myself badly. What I meant was that if he could induce others to believe what he said, then for him, the statement acquired some degree of truth, a reflection of their belief that it was true. And this reflected truth might grow stronger with time and repetition until it became conviction indistinguishable from ordinary factual truth or very nearly so. And Ian, I really want to make this a meme. You know, I'm yeah. not sure how many people would read this, but I want to say, boy, we're happening. This is happening all the time now. This is so chillingly like social media and 
culture wars and our political conversations. This reflection. wow, I, I, I'm going to get a couple of uh, stickers to go on the fender of my car. One is going to say, "Truth is what I can induce others to believe," and that it's indistinguishable from ordinary factual truth. I'd like to have that on the fender of my car. On the other side, I think I'll have a shorter, punchier one that says no reproduction without copulation. Just <laughs> Here we go. Election slogans. Anyhow, um, O'Brien is keeping us with Fox here. We spent quite a lot of time with a few themes emerging in this chapter. We've spent quite a lot of time exploring you know, connotations and connections with scripture. We've spent quite a lot of time exploring the changing roles of Stephen and Jack. We've spent a lot of time, a lot of time, exploring the character and the limitations and the vicissitudes of Fox. And at this point, O'Brien turns to Fox again, a point not lost on us with all these reminders about Clonfort, who was another man who sought to be admired and respected. Um, O'Brien tells us that this time, Stephen examines Fox and determines that there is something wrong with him. He prescribes confinement to the cabin, a low diet, physic and bleeding. And this time it's going to be real physic. He's touched to see Ali, the servant, silently crying into the bowl that Ali has to hold to collect Fox's blood when Stephen's open opens a vein for him. He prescribes strong purgatives and laxatives, rhubarb, hiera picra, and calomel. We'll come back to them in a minute. The, this whole purgative treatment leaves Fox in some discomfort and sometimes great pain, but it seems to work that after a good clear out, the Fox who returns is the plain uncomplicated character that Stephen usually only saw when Fox was absorbed in something else like shooting. He's not a bad patient. He's particularly kind to Ali and Yusuf and Ahmed. And Stephen reflects that maybe Fox's particular relationship with Ali has something to do with that. He's also mindful that the Malay language is full of words for conveying rank for letting those at the top of the hierarchy know it. So maybe engaging in conversation with his Malay servants gets him a few reminders of his status here. And uh, maybe Stephen's holding out the promise that Fox might be feeling more at ease once he gets into, into Malaysia. And Mike, let, let, let's go back to this purgative. Is, is, is this made up or is this a real thing? Rhubarb, Kiera, Picra, and Calomel. Yeah, this is this is a real thing. As a matter of fact, it's a combination of a number of real things, all of which you know, pretty effective in their own right. And and this combination would be so effective that you would see somebody, if somebody had tapeworms, this is what you would give them to, to, to blow it out that they do the tapeworms in and blow them out. Yeah. I was, I was a, a little shocked reading about this. <laughs> Sounds like something you might give to a horse. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So, you know, Fox is now going to be confined and while he's confined, O'Brien tells us that Edwards is, is kind of freed. And he becomes a welcome addition to the gun room. He laughs much more on the quarter deck, you know, and all around. They're just like everybody are in, you know, everybody's enjoying Edwards until Fox's confinement ends. Now, Stephen tells Fox to continue a moderate diet. And Fox says that, you know, he can't eat the ship's food now because it's unpalatable. And Stephen reminds him that. 200 of their shipmates live on that food, you know, day in and day out, year after year. And Fox makes fun of the sailors saying that they probably would prefer salt beef to caviar and remarks at this time, you know, really got under Stephen's skin. You know, this is this is Stephen the revolutionary we're talking about. And he doesn't like slights on the lower deck, but, you know, he wisely keeps his mouth shut here. And Fox says, you know, I wonder if this journey is ever going to end. 
And Stephen says, well, you know, given the birds that I've been seeing, you know, we've got to be within 100 miles of land. Wow. And Fox says, what a satisfaction. But then interestingly, he adds, and yet, do you know, Matron, after all these hours of lying here, I've come to the conclusion that there's something not displeasing in this solitude, this perpetual traveling, this perpetual confinement, this remoteness from all society and cares and activity. If reasonable food were forthcoming, I'm by no means sure that I would wish to ever have it come to an end. There is a great deal to be said for suspended animation. Mm. This, you know, I, I didn't know quite what to make of this, but it really gave me a pause. Like, Fox, I don't know what's going on with him. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah. I is, is he talking himself into this? Is he having some kind of revelatory thing where he realizes he's getting to some, you know, some kind of enlightenment? It's very strange. Very strange. Right. And it, it, it's funny, the whole tone of these last few paragraphs of the chapter, it gets very kind of calm and detached and a little bit eerie, I think, certainly as I'm reading it. Now, it gets even eerier as Fox goes deeper into this conversation with Stephen. Fox asks if he knows the author of some lines that Fox has translated. And, and Mike, we're coming up here on one of the classic literary puzzles and talking points of the O'Brien canon. And Fox reads out these lines or uh, declaims these lines. When the bells jostle in the tower, the hollow night amid, then on my tongue the taste is sour of all I ever did. Uh, we'll come back to the origin of the words in a second. But Stephen spots uh, the, the tonality and the language of this sounds like it's about to lead to Fox sharing some kind of confidence with him because Fox is lonely, wants to talk with someone. I think he hears some you know, connotations in the words here. Um, he thinks it's likely that it's going to be a salacious confession and that Fox is later going to regret sharing it and therefore will resent Stephen for it. So Stephen decides that the two of them can work together if and only if Stephen seems indifferent toward Fox, but not if Fox resents him. So Stephen's got an interesting challenge here. How can he wrap up this conversation so that he doesn't invite the detailed confession, but still leaves the door open? And he's, he's almost successful. <sighs> he says, I don't know the author, and asks Fox if he remembers the original lines. And Fox says, no, I don't remember the original lines. And Mike, we're both sitting here chortling going, yeah, he doesn't remember the original lines for a very good reason that we're coming to. Stephen goes on and says, it can't be ancient. He's talking here about this text with the bells in the tower. It cannot be an ancient. The pagans, as far as my reading goes, were never much given to self-hatred or guilt about their sexual activities. That was reserved for Christians with their particular sense of sin. Again, Mike, that's a bit of a bit of a resonance for today. And goes on, Stephen, as all I ever did clearly refers to ill-doing, I must suppose it to be of a sexual nature since a thief is not always stealing, nor a murderer always murdering, whereas a man's sexual instincts are with him all the time, day and night. And Stephen's clearly managed to rebuff the discussion here, but he then goes on and adds, yet, he says, it is curious to see how the self-hater often succeeds in retaining his self-esteem in relation to others, usually by means of a general denigration. He sees himself as a worthless creature, but his fellows as more worthless still. Yowza, Mike, that's, that's a very, very pointed remark. You can't even begin to think that that's Stephen talking about himself. This is Stephen talking about Fox. And, uh, oh boy. Let's just talk about these lines for a second. Mike, we said, we said there's a good reason why 
the fictional fox in 1813 might not remember these original lines. Remind us, why could that be exactly? Yeah, it's it's because these lines are from A.E. Hausman, the poet, and, and they're a complete anachronism since the lines were not published until even after Hausman's death by Hausman's brother in, in 1936 in a, in a book called Additional Poems. That's poem, you know, Roman numeral number nine, IX here. So, and, and it's interesting so these are some poems that Hausman never published, and, and there may be some reasons behind that. His brother brought a couple of books of these things out, and after their publication, you know, Hausman's sexual orientation began to be questioned. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of wondered, is this O'Brien kind of reflecting on Fox? Does this have something to do with his intense hatred of Ledward? And, and, and rather than kind of go deeply into this anachronism, I'd love to point people, and, and maybe we can put this up on the socials, the, the gun room actually has a link on this topic. Uh, it's called Bells in the Tower, you know, referring back to this poem. And a woman who, a member of the gun room, back earlier, she had published a very interesting article in the Hausman Society Journal, which was also published on the gun room talking about these lines and Hausman and O'Brien and the canon. So, you know, I think that might be the best way to get at it. Um, and, and this whole idea that, you know, you rarely see an anachronism in O'Brien, but perhaps sometimes he does it to poke us in the eye or have a little fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly thinking that you know, this is one here. And it's why we get this, you know, he's translated these lines, just like earlier in the book, we had a wise man once said when we're having an anachronistic quote here about the flashes last time. Yeah. Uh, and it's it, like, like you say that the tone of it is very dark. The, the, the setting of this quotation coming from Fox has got this confessional thing that Stephen's clearly switched onto. Reflecting back, Stephen realizes that he wasn't entirely successful. He wanted to head off the unwanted confession but he realizes that those last words didn't have that effect. He said they were in another spirit and the effect was too harsh by far. And he sees this straight away in Fox's response, who's clearly wounded. Fox just says, oh, I quite agree. And then gives a very proper and formal speech, thanking Maturin for his kindness and for apologizing for being such an important nuisance. And from this point onwards, Stephen sees, no, I've, I've blown it. Where is the moral advantage now? Stephen asks himself. Heavy stupidity, incomprehension would have been much better, he thinks, as he's walking back up the companion ladder. He was just about to climb up it, meaning the companion ladder, when a boy came hurtling down, took a great leap to avoid him, missed his footing and fell flat. Are you quite well, Mr. Reed? He asked, picking him up. Quite well, sir. Thank you. I beg pardon for tumbling about, but the captain sent me to tell you we have sighted Java Head. Java Head, sir. Ain't it prime? End of chapter five. Right. So we, we get relieved from the gloomy uh, character revelations there with a bit of lighthearted humor and slapstick knockabout from the young midshipman. Great ending to the chapter there, Mike. Oh, it really is. What what a journey, what a character study. You know, it's a long chapter with, as we've said, fabulous descriptions of winter sailing, you know, all these different seas and nature and storms. And, you know, another in-depth characterization of a, of a character that we've got some concerns about, but we're also getting to know a little bit better. I mean, we've had this yeah. real long game with Ledward and Ray playing out here, and now Fox is in the equation here. Ah, 
And we've cited Job Ahead. That is, I agree with Reed. That's very prime. Right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're about to leave the vast emptiness of the Pacific and Southern Indian Ocean, and they're going to be into the crowded, exotic, shallow, hazardous waters of the Southern China Seas. We've got things coming ahead of us. We've got a meeting with Raffles, who we've already heard about in this story. We're heading eventually to Pulau Prabang, we hope, where we're going to encounter maybe Ledwood and Ray. Mike, there's, there's plenty more in this story still to come. What do you say next week to just a little bit more? Patrick O'Brien. Oh, with all my heart. C-L-E-R-K, a British person would pronounce Clark. And I'm pretty sure an American person would pronounce Clerk. Right. And you've listened to Tull, and I haven't. Do you happen to know whether Tull pronounces this person's name Clark or Clerk? Because he's got an E on the end. Oh, which is gosh. Kind of making the point about it. You know, it's funny. I didn't notice. Close the door behind you. You sit down. But instantly said to him, Clark. Clark. I sent for you. Oh, to this tell this you is great I audio. Man looks things up on computer. I, I, I love triggering these kind of spontaneous moments, Mike. <laughs>